What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Oh, Glenn, I'm so sorry I'm late. I was just out there training. Where have you been? I was out there training my dog. What took you so long? Well, we were doing this particular scenario mm-hmm. where we were using a hard dog chomp. Yep. I got that from Canon Dynamics, by the way. From old mate Mark LaPointe? Mark LaPointe. Yep. Yeah. I got. Uh, I get a lot of my working dog equipment from him. He really flogs some good stuff, doesn't he? Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Canon Dynamics. Yeah. And then my dog was attached to a leash and collar. Where did you get that from? I got that from Mindswick Dog Quip. Not the old bullfed. I got it from Jason. Oh. <laughs> okay. Mindswick Dog Quip. Mindswick Dog Quip. And, and it all went perfectly. Yep. So I- Had you reward the dog? I, I'm very interested. Well, aside from the bites on the chomp, mm-hmm. but, you know, for other things, yep. I gave the dog some bright bites. Oh, good call. Yep. Bright bite. You really are a name dropper, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> You've got the best of the three. You've got the golden triad right there. Absolutely. Mm. If you want, you know, if you're in North America and you want working dog equipment, yep. Canon Dynamics. Yep. If you're in Australia and you want any kind of dog equipment, Mindswick Dog Quip. And if you're going to use dog treats, you're crazy if you're feeding your dog anything other than Bright Spice. Absolutely. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Hello, everyone. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm quite well. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Had a good show with uh, Bertie last week and got some really good feedback on that one. And as she said, it opened up a can of worms at one stage. (laughs) A few people were sort of commenting that they enjoyed the vulnerability of the conversation. Yeah. But I think that when you really get into the weeds of trust- I think the reflective thing on that is that many people can recall stories where trust was broken. Mm. So it is a deep-seated conversation because it is very recallable. You can think about it think, oh, yeah, there was that time or several times that that's happened. I've spoken to people recently where there's been some real major trust issues going on in their life. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about it. I don't, I don't think I said it on the show, but trust to me is – I was thinking about it after we drove home. Mm. Uh, trust to me is transparency. Yep. Like this is a fact as best of my knowledge, there's some good ones and there's some bad ones, but this is it. And I think that's trust is transparency. And so like being as transparent as possible, I think is a great way to build trust and maintain it Mm. when, and I think that feeds also into the idea of, you know, something we used to say in the army a lot is uh, bad news doesn't get any better with age. Yep. And so- a big part of that culture, certainly in, in my unit, was getting ahead of your own mistakes. Mm-hmm. So, like, the instant it happens, like, owning up to it immediately yep. and being like, hey, I've made a mistake. I need your help to rectify it, mm-hmm. right? Like, we as a crew need to come together and do this. And and I think that feeds into a little bit of the the coping mechanism of that being a lot of self-deprecating humor. Mm-hmm. So, you'd, you'd get people, certainly I've been guilty of this myself, of, um, like, outing yourself for a mistake that you've made, but in a funny manner, mm-hmm. right? So like everybody, we've made light and made jest of a bad situation. Mm. 
Actually, you know what? I'll tell you a story. Yeah, go on. <laughs> so my old unit has this thing called the TAG, right? The Tactical Assault Group, right? Mm-hmm. That is considered the force of national last resort. And and I spent, I think, seven years of my 12 years in, in – it's actually five years today that I left the Army. Is uh, that a congratulatory thing? or Not really. It just is what it is. Yeah. And I only remember because Facebook told me this morning. Yeah. It came up with the post that I put when I was getting out with a uh, photo of me in a giant field of – Oh, Carolina. yeah, I saw that. Yeah. 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 Where was that picture taken? Uh, Afghanistan. Mm. Yeah. In a giant – like – yeah, I've been in fields of of weed there that are like over the horizon, yeah. like as far as the eye can see. Same as poppies as well. So oh, wow. So one day, I spent most of my career in the tag, right? The tactical mm-hmm. assault group. It's considered the force of national last resort. There's no one else coming, right? And yep. it mostly works within uh, hostage rescue type situations. Yep. Anyone that watched the Patreon where I taught that circle thing, I talked about like military planning processes. Mm-hmm. And how you have a task verb and that's like what you're going to do. And so the tags really only ever task verb is save, right? They're, what their, their mission is pretty much always uh, sloth, save the lives of the hostages. And that's really yep. the, pretty much the only time that they can be used, mm-hmm. especially domestically. And so it never has been called out on a large scale and people wanted them to be at the Martin Place thing. And even that didn't count as being uh, something that the tag needed to do. Yep. And there's two tags, a tag East and a tag West. This is all public information. This is not secrets. Right. Anyway. And so when you're in the tag, it's called being on team. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was on team when the new range opened. Right. And it's like a $180 million range complex. You've been there, right? When we yep. did the gold yep. school there. With so, yeah, with Yeah. Yeah. So you're constantly, that's from this big, huge national counterterrorism budget. Mm. So we house it, but it's owned by this counterterrorism budget. So police and stuff use it. Yep. And uh, anyway, people constantly look at how much that place costs and want to know. Where is this money? Because it costs a lot of money to maintain, to keep mm. going and to build. And so constantly for politicians and all kinds of people, you have to justify the cost of that range and yep. the expense. And so there's this, this standardized demo. So when that range opened, we had this older range that wasn't as good that we would constantly have to do these demos on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we opened this new one. It was this going to be this new standardized demo. We had to come up with like, okay, how are we going to show all the skill sets in here? Yep. At the time, I was just a digger. I was in the. I was a team driver, and we had to set up how we're going to do this like shooting thing. So one of it was these two cars come flying in, and this, and the guys are shooting from the back, and blah blah blah. And we had to decide where do all the targets go because it's going to be standardized. So for people who see it, it's mm-hmm. new and exciting. But for us, we should be able to do it in our sleep, right? Like it's this is you could say to set up the demo, and everybody knows exactly what that is. And there's all these different components to it, right? Mm-hmm. And so like the sniper demo, which I later had to do like is the platoon sergeant or the platoon commander gives this speech and he's like acting like a bit of a dick, like he's drinking while he's giving the speech, talking mm-hmm. about sniper capability. Yep. And people would be watching thinking like, why is this guy drinking? Like, can you not, can you not stop drinking for even a moment? Like <laughs> while you're, and so you're like, oh, excuse me. And you take a drip of this water and then they put, you put that cup down and get shot straight out from your hand, right? Yep. To prove like sniper, blah, blah, blah. Right. Which I never enjoyed doing because it's like- <laughs> Yeah, things go wrong, right? Sometimes that cup gets missed. Anyway, (laughs) um, so we're setting up for what this demo is going to look like. At the time, I was a driver of one of the cars that's going to come flying in. I was like, you know what? We could put a target here and I'll just shoot one-handed pistol out the window as we're doing that. And everyone's like, you can't do that, you idiot. And I was like, no, let's do it. So we set up. We're going to like practice what this demo is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And as we're flying in, giant power slide, I got the handbrake up, cars drifting in sideways as I pull my pistol out and shoot through the window, which you would never do. Like that's that's total movie nonsense, but the demo is nonsense, right? Mm -hmm. I pull my pistol out and out the window shoot this mannequin balloon head target thing and nail it, first shot. Like, And it was... 
the only reason the guy running the range even let me do it was just to embarrass me yeah. right? because there was no way I was going to be able to do it. And I pulled it off. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's it. Like, I just, I'm the best. <laughs> so I put my, put my pistol back in my holster. The whole team's like jump off and they're, they're off doing their thing. And I'd use the handbrake to slide in, but I hadn't put the handbrake on, right? And yep. so I'd like just pulled it and pushed it back down as I got out. And so all the, the, the two teams are now like going forward as I'm still getting out of my car and I'm still thinking about how amazing I am. I'm still thinking about how good I am at shooting this. I can't believe, can't wait to tell everyone about this mm -hmm. as I watch my car overtake me. Right, because oh, <laughs> I've left it in drive, yep. and I pulled the handbrake, but then put it back down, <laughs> and I watched my car overtake and me. You just and blew all your credibility yeah, right there. But so it is rolling past me, yep. and it's going to like hit the edge of the wall, and it's actually headed towards where the people would be watching the demo, right? Yep. So I start running, and I'm chasing <laughs> after my own car, and I dive in <laughs> through the window of my own car, and of course hit the horn, right? Yep. So my like, everybody turns to look and. As I'm like Dangling legs hanging out, out of my yeah. cars, my cars like winding to a stop and look back. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it's quite embarrassing, right, that that happened. You, sir, will never get a job as a stunt rider in the Duke of Hazard. <laughs> no, absolutely <laughs> not. But so immediately I have to tell that – and here I am telling it to whoever's listening, but yep. that day – basically required me running around telling everybody about how badly I'd fucked up, <laughs> right, in order that nobody else got to tell that story. And yep. it, they needed to hear my version, and I was going to paint that as, yeah, it was so funny, guys. It was funny. Because the story could be Pat nearly fucking killed a bunch of people with his car, yep. or it could be Pat made one little error. <laughs> <laughs> so you basically M&M'd yourself in 8 Mile. Yeah. You got to get ahead of yourself it. before your opponent could get yeah, out. That's yeah. right. Get ahead of it. Yep. Anyway, so that's what I think, like, trust to me is transparency. Like, you just own mm. everything and you, like, you, you are who you are. Yeah. I was thinking on that episode quite a bit afterwards, and I, I recall times where I have tried to cover over or gloss a story over, and I've just thought how much deception had to be wound into that to try and get that story to go the angle I wanted it to go and how many deceptions I had to weave into it. And I kept thinking to myself – there are times where instead of just saying, you know, like this, it's embarrassing and I'm, and, and this happened and I feel like a dickhead for doing it. It didn't go my way. So I tried to, to wind it up. And then sometimes you can just see the skepticism on people's face when they're thinking, did that really happen? You know, like that's not how I recall it. And especially if other people were present at the time, like yeah, you can yeah. tell a story and then people go, uh, I think that might be your interpretation of it, but that's not what I re remember of it as yeah, well. Yeah. I think everybody does it. And I mean, it happens a lot when you're children as well. Like when, especially when you're learning to lie, you do things like that. But it's sad when you're an adult and you're trying to make a, mm. a long-term career of doing those type of things. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there's a great uh, podcast by Malcolm Gladwell called Revisionist History. Mm -hmm. And what he does is he investigates things that were big news. Yeah. A while ago. Right. And so he looks back now that it's over and no one gives a shit, right? Yeah. He no one's emotional about it anymore. Mm -hmm. He then goes into like, okay, what really happened? Like yep. aside from the news cycle of like getting this info out mm. to cause hysteria and get people upset, he does a real deep investigation on how did this really happen? And there's a great episode he does on memory and how it works. Yep. And he's like, basically the idea is that the story gets better with the telling. Yep. And the way memory works is you, your memories are not set. Mm. So you store a memory in your brain when you pull it out, 
if it gets modified, so you tell the story and maybe you by accident add or, or on purpose embellish a small part of it, right? And then when you put that away, that goes away as the memory. And so next time you tell that, you might not even be uh, cognizant that you are adding the part that you made up last time because mm. it made the story better. It comes out as the truth. And so like it's why eyewitness testimony is useless, right? Mm. Because every time you tell a story, every time you recall an event, yep. you're susceptible to, to change. Mm. And there's also, I think it's on that same podcast, he talks about how they, they've done studies where they can implant memories into people. Mm. Um, and peop, so the, the way they do it is they do a really deep investigation. They're, they're all grad students, right? They do a really deep investigation into your life as a child. Yep. And they have some really good information from you, from your parents. And so they get like, they know a lot and they'll be like, tell us about this event, right? And it's true. And you're like, oh yeah, and you're on. And they can guide the story a little bit because it's all true. They've got the information. And then what they did was they implanted memories in people of the time they got arrested for carrying a knife with their friend, right? Yep. And so they then say, oh, and tell us about the time you got arrested with, with Glenn. And like, what? And over three sessions, by the third session, you'll tell the story about the time you got arrested with the knife mm. that never happened, right? That they can implant into you. And it's when they know so much else and it just seems like they can basically guide you into saying whatever you want. And then those same people can pass a polygraph and like- it, That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. So they are telling their truth and mm. it's a total nonsense situation. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. I've seen uh, Darren Brown do similar things with people where, yeah. you know, like it's a form of hypnotism, but- he is convincing them that they've done some heinous crime when, in fact, they had no part in it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It's incredible how the human mind works sometimes or doesn't. It kind of reminds me of that movie. I don't know. Have you seen My Cousin Vinny? Yeah. How these people are convinced that they're the two perps and they've done all these heinous things when, in fact, they had nothing to do with it at all. But it was just their perception of what the events were and because the town was gossiping with each other. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's it, right? The, yeah. The, the, the rumour mill. The rumour mill, yeah. So we've had some interesting topics come up lately in the thread. Yeah. There's been, been a few that, so, which have caused a bit of deep-level yeah. discussion. So a friend and sponsor of the show, Jason Furman, mm. wants to do an episode on industry frauds. Mm. That could be wrought with danger. Yeah. <laughs> so it's an interesting topic, yep. right? Because I think that every industry has industry frauds. Absolutely. I think that we can discuss this in a way that also encompasses imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. right? Like I think a lot of people having seen industry frauds maybe get the feeling that they are that themselves. Yep. We've got some testimony to go through delicately of someone who contacted us and admitted to having been an industry fraud. Mm, mm. So there's a few angles that we were going to discuss this. It is amazing the subject of imposter syndrome as well. When I've spoken to people who are very intelligent people and have got an incredible background and a deep layer of knowledge behind them that they feel that they would be a fraud if they went out there and started teaching people. Mm. And I mean, I've sat down to speak with some of these people, like we've had some interesting dialogue back and forth and their conversations are great. Like their industry knowledge is very specific. They're well-researched people, very intelligent people. And yet they kind of think, oh, I just couldn't do this in front of a group of people because I, I just feel like, why would people want to come and listen to me? And mm. I'm, I would say to them, your knowledge is spectacular. Mm. And yet other people who are empty vessels seem to be able to pull that off quite well. I think this is probably a double-edged knife, right? Like, so- 
there is no requirement to become a dog trainer. Anybody mm-hmm. can say, yep, I'm doing it. That's right. And in fact, I have done that. I have done no formal courses, right? Like other than, like obviously I've been through the Nipopo school and stuff, but there is the NDTF course here, which mm. I have not done. And so I think for some people might think like, okay, despite having all this knowledge and studied it and really knowing it really well, I don't have any evidence of that. There is no certificate on the wall. Like when you go to a doctor, you look on the wall and there's his PhD, right? Mm -hmm. And so you go like, okay, you have earned that. And someone has, you've met an objective standard and someone has said you can perform this, these duties. And in our industry, we don't have that. There is no, there is no requirement to have that. Now you could get it, Mm. right? And I think that that works as a, as I say, as a double-edged sword, because some people who don't have it think, well, I have no business charging anybody and therefore I can't do yep. that as a job. And then you get some people who will meet whatever the minimum standard is and go, that's it. Like, there's nothing more from me. I have, I have that. I, I'm done. Well, certification doesn't mean that you're not a fraud. Yeah. I mean, I know plenty of people who've done certification course and I'm not going to talk about NDTF or anything specific. I'm just talking in, I'm generalizing mm-hmm. open field of all things, but I know people who have done bachelor's PhDs and so forth. And I wouldn't go to them for advice. Mm. They just, they've done the theoretical knowledge, but being able to actually impart it onto other people, they don't have the skill set to be able to do that. And they might know it themselves, but they can't teach it to other people. Yeah. And I think that's very common across lots of industries. Mm. Uh, I have a good friend of mine who's a, a physiotherapist, right? Yep. And while he was going through uni, he was working as a PT. Yep. And he's like a superhuman, you know, like he's jacked. Mm. And so his first year out of uni, he's on the tools, he's into it. He's really all over treatment of people. Yep. And I was discussing with him, I was like, wow, like your standard is really high. The standard of physio is that high. And he laughed out loud. He goes, mate, most of the people in my class haven't got a clue. Mm-hmm. Like their knowledge of the physio stuff, like their theoretical knowledge is what it must be. It's through the roof. They've met that standard. Yep. But actual treatment of patients and understanding the cause and effect of mobility and movement and that sort of stuff, he goes, it, it just isn't there. Mm. And it will take them 10 years to learn that. And through trial and error and all that kind of thing, again, to get to his standard where he was first year out because he's a physical person, mm. right? And I think a lot of physios are that, like a lot of physios come from a background of like physicality themselves. And he's, you know, was working as a, doing massage and stuff like that for money in the gym that he was teaching and instructing at. So like, he's really all over that trade yep. and he's exceptional at it, mm. right? But there's lots of people who are not frauds. They've got their certification same day as he does. They they graduated university yeah, as a physiotherapist the yeah. same day, but mm. their standard is just going to be way lower than him. Mm. And they may never even in the, in the 30 years of their career in that job, they may never get to being even as good as he was on day one of his because he was like naturally at it, but also doing his own work in the background. Yeah. I think to add some clarification to that, if you've got the qualification and you're trying to pass yourself off as something that you're not without the, let's say, the pragmatic experience, then I would say that you, you're being fraudulent in your in what you're representing. It doesn't mean that you're academically a fraud, but it means the way that you're currently behaving is fraudulent. Like you're saying- I am this level of experience, but I'm not mm. simply to market yourself, to get the business to do it. So, I mean, I've, I've met people like that before. And I mean, you've just given a good example of your physio. When I go and see my chiropractor, Dennis, 
like this guy is absolutely amazing. He's a genius of what he knows. Again, he's a physically buff guy. When he's working on you, he can name every single muscle, nerve cluster, ligament in your body. And he'll give you like the accurate description of it and tell you how it works in your body and then give you exercises to be able to do. So, I mean, not only can he fix your ailments, but he can actually tell you what's going on in your body. And if he believes that there's something that's not within in his realm of understanding, he'll say, I think it's time to go and get an x-ray or get an ultrasound because we need to, you know, we need somebody else to find out what's going on in that part of your body and then share that with me. So we have a a shared knowledge of what's going on. And I appreciate that about people. I really, it doesn't matter whether you're a dog trainer or you're a doctor. I really appreciate when people know their limitations in what they're doing and they're able to say, you know, this is beyond me now. This is my level of expertise. We've reached that. We've hit the ceiling. It's now time to consult with somebody else that has a deeper knowledge than what I do. You know, what's interesting is both of us just use the same example where we're talking about a health professional yep. and both of us describe them as being at the pinnacle of physical health themselves. Right. Right. Maybe there's something in that where you're looking at dog industry professionals, mm. right, is a standard of proof. Yeah. Right. So when I look at my someone who's in charge of keeping me healthy, mm. if they themselves are not healthy, then I kind of go, well- like, do you actually know what you're talking about? Like, to what standard are you accountable to your own information? Mm. What evidence is there that what you're saying works, yep. right? And I think the same can apply to us as dog trainers mm. where we can say, like, where's your body of evidence? Yeah, right? what can you do? Like, can you and, – and it goes against the – not goes against. It goes alongside the ethos of our PSA club. Cool story, bro. Show me your dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. And I think that – that can be tricky as well because I know a lot of, say a lot of dog trainers that deal in aggression and, and difficult dogs and that sort of thing. A mm. lot of them have taken on extreme cases that are not easily resolved, mm. right? Or a long-term resolution cases. Yeah. So sometimes you might like, cause I have done this in the past and I've had to eat my words a few times when people say like, you know, I'm an expert in dealing with aggressive dogs and whatever. And, and they've got this, like disaster aggressive dog themselves. Yep. And I, I say, yeah, but you yourself are not able to remedy this situation with that dog. And okay. I've held that against people. But then I've also realized some of the, like the, the person I had in mind took the dog off a client because mm. the dog really was a disaster case and is a lifelong management case. And the client had given up yep. and that person had agreed, like, I'm not prepared to give up. I'm going to work at this forever. Yep. If it takes 10 years to work this through. And as we know, some cases are, are not easily resolved or even resolved at all. Mm. Right. And I think as dog trainers, sometimes we, we can lie to ourselves about that, where we say like, it's operant, right? Like you, Every behavior has a consequence. And if you don't allow that, well, some- Some things are unexplainable. That's right. Like mm. some some brains just aren't put together in the way that yeah. fits that model. Yeah, right? that's right. There's another aspect to, to look at this because I think we've talked about something like this on a similar vein before in another episode where I was contacted by somebody and they said, we're having a conversation. I don't recall who the person is. So if you're listening to this and you recall the conversation, reach out to me again because it was an interesting conversation. But the, the vein of the conversation was that we've highlighted that before, like you're preaching this, but you've got this type of dog. But the person said, well, in a different vein, in a different show, you and Pat kind of said that you might own that dog because you tolerate it. 
you know, where other people would not and it would be too difficult for them. But mm. for them, it's it's manageable and they don't really care. Mm. And I've, you know, like people have come around here before and said, oh, your dogs jump on, on me and they do all these sort of things. I said, yeah, because I don't care about it. Yeah. For me, it's laughable. Mm. And if it bothers visitors, I put the dogs out. You know, so for me, I don't need to have them on perfect display all the time. Mm. If I wanted to have a demo dog, then I'll pull Randy out and I'll do stuff with him. You know, like I'll show them things that I can do with them. With my inside potatoes, they're just inside potatoes. Mm. They're dogs for me to laugh at and just have a fun life with. Mm. And I know I know do- a lot of dog trainers who have got dogs like that and they just – they don't care that their dogs are rambunctious. Yeah. They can live with that behavior. They're dog people. In fact, they enjoy it. They, they enjoy they it. I enjoy it. it. They encourage it. it co- absolutely. All of the above. So I guess with that type of modeling – we can be critical about it sometimes. And yes, there are dog trainers out there who are giving specific advice and then they're saying, well, look at me, but they haven't got the goods to produce. And I know, I know of several high level dog trainers, scandalous people. This, <laughs> they, I know of high level dog trainers that have used other people's dogs to pass off as their own dogs. Oh, yeah. Like they've pulled the dog out. They've done a demo with the dog. They've never said the words, this is my training or my dogs, but they've insinuated all along and people have believed that that's a product of their training. Mm. And it's never been. It's the owner of the dog did all the training. The owner of the of the dog brought the dog up to that level. All they did was like five-minute handover and, and kind of got how to work the dog and then gone on to film themselves doing things with dogs. Like I know the people who have done this because the owner of the dog's gone, what the actual fuck just happened? You know, like this person just took credibility for all like the last two and a half years of my training. (laughs) And that is rich, you know, and that is deep layered fraud right there. Yeah. So I wonder the difference between, because I think that in the industry, we can all say there is a bunch of industry frauds, right? Mm. And, but I think that where you fit on the scale of whether you're, you are exactly who you say you are versus you're an industry fraud, I doubt there's too many people that are legit frauds who are maintaining a facade. I Mm. think that most people that like in Jason's post there, and we're reading a lot of the comments, I think that a lot of the people that they're referring to uh, probably are not being fraudulent in their behavior, Mm. i.e. they're not lying, right? So I think that a lot of people maybe just haven't kept up, right? And so- and their idea of dog training is is a 30-year-old idea of dog training, mm. right? You know, I like to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I prefer to sort of err on the side of, well, exactly that, giving people the benefit of the doubt. And I think that mostly people are not maliciously being fraudulent, like actually lying. Mm. There's a lot of, you know, you certainly do see some people who, are incapable of the, the the product that they're selling, yep. but they aren't aware of that, right? Like I think that they're what they think they're doing is cutting edge. They're selling themselves as yes, I can do this, and and thirty years ago that was the best that anybody could get of that product. Yeah, and you see this like you know like they were a, a police dog handler thirty years ago, mm. right? And so police dog training thirty years ago is not great, and they haven't progressed past that in 30 years of being out or, you know, however long they've been out or whatever. And so I think that those people are not fraudulent. Like if you, like they're in their heart of heart, they're doing what they're doing, what they know. They're they're frozen in time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think that if you're not plugged into the community, you can, it can be really, you don't know what you don't know. Mm. Right. And 
so many things move so quickly now. In fact, you know, to use myself as an example, someone asked me recently to do some shooting coaching stuff for them. And I was like, man, I haven't shot a piss on five years. Like Mm. I don't, I'm so far off the tools and I can do really, really, I still, I'd be able to pick one up and do exactly what I could do five years ago, but there's better drills and stuff now. Like people, it's progressing because people are constantly moving that forward. And because I have no interest in it and it's not my job anymore, I have not kept up. Like I am- so what basically what you're saying is contact Keanu Reeves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but so like <laughs> a lot of what was happening when as I was finishing in the army were there were a lot of IPSC, which is like a civilian shooting competition, had become way more popular mm. and their sponsorship in that. And so it, money was driving that forward and people were, you know, developing a lot of techniques. It's very similar to the sport versus real world, right? Yep. And so IPSC is, uh, it's not real at all. No one's shooting back at you. And they do things in that that are absolutely ridiculous. Like there are some things that do not transfer at all, where you might be in cover at one place and uh, have to move to another cover place and so people will do a preemptive mag change along the way and they'll they'll have a 12 round magazine they'll drop eight rounds on the floor right Mm -hmm. and that's fine because you know you have this many targets it's a time stage shoot like in a gunfight you don't drop eight rounds onto the floor you fucking (laughs) like you when you're carrying them all right like you don't leave that shit lying around you need them all right you might change magazines one or two rounds early but not eight in a 12 round mag right which is common in ipsc Mm. so there's that's totally not anything that transfers to the real world, but some of the speed and precision of their drills and their placement of equipment and that kind of thing is really applicable to the real world. And so we have people come in and coach that kind of stuff. Mm. So like I say, that's not something I'm interested in now and I'm miles behind. I am still, I'm frozen in time from when I last run a gun. I haven't changed. I haven't updated my skills. I haven't done anything, right? Yep. But I'm really aware of that. And so it's not something, if, if someone was like, hey, can you teach me this? I'd be like, yeah, I can teach you very high level skills as of 2015. Yep. Right. But I don't know mm. what people are doing in 2020. It's just not something I'm plugged into. And I think that we do see the same thing in the dog world. Yeah. I think for sure we see that. Right? Yeah. And I've been guilty of that in the past, you know, like where I've, I've held on to the mystique of the old days, you know, the good old days mm-hmm. where that was sort of where you were living your best life. And then you've seen other people do things and you think, oh shit, you know, like I don't know how to do that. Mm. I guess for a lot of people out there is don't be too proud to ask. You know, like if you're seeing people that are doing amazing things and you're intrigued by it, go up and talk to them. You can just say, look, I I thought I was proficient with what I know, but I've just seen you trump some capabilities. Can we swap notes? Mm. You know, and I mean, if you're attending seminars, a lot of these people are very eager to share. Mm. And I found that when you have been that vulnerable with people, um, they enjoy – the fact that, you know, they've got to share something that they're doing pretty amazing with you as well. Yeah. Mm. Going Just stepping back in time for a second, just on talking about the shooting, uh, I know I've talked about this book on a few episodes going back. It's the book on combat by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. And in that book, he was talking about a police officer who became so proficient at doing disarming drills of pistols that in a legitimate situation where he was in a convenience store and the clerk was held up, he approached the criminal, the criminal turned around to him and pointed the gun at me and he disarmed it like instantly and then he gave it back because that's what he'd been drilling. And fortunately, his partner came and shot the offender because he was going to get opened up. There's a lot of stories about that. That's That's just incredible to think that you become so proficient that your muscle memory doesn't – like your brain and your muscles just 
automatic, go into autopilot. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so yeah. knowing that there's a lot of things that people like intelligent trainers do now. Yeah. So in the, like a team training, like a pairs training scenario, whether it's a disarm or something like that, we uh, now teach people to close their eyes for the setup. Yep. Because one of the things is like, imagine you're teaching someone to, someone does have a gun pointed right at your head and you're going to deal with disarming that. What we don't even allow people to do is watch someone put a gun to their head yep. because you should never allow that to happen. Mm. And so you never want to even rehearse the process of you seeing that happen because you don't want that to be normalized in your brain, mm. right? And so, and then like that's even a step forward from then you never hand it back. You run, you play out the whole scenario as you would like you, yep. and then you don't even hand it back. Now what they do is they reset the scenario where the two, the two players will put all the equipment on the floor and deem it safe. Yeah, no, no, but then like once the scenario is played out, mm. then I don't even ever pass the gun back to you. I've done the whole scenario of clearing yeah. it, blah, blah, blah. And then I put it on the, we say, okay, stop, it's finished. Yep. I put it on the floor, I leave, and then you pick it up. So I don't even see you pick right. it up. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, that, and then like if we're going to reset, I close my eyes, you put yourself into that position so that I don't normalize the idea of you putting me in a vulnerable position. Mm. It's really important, that stuff. Yeah, like, it is. Really, really important. Back to dog training. Back to dog training. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to the non-gun toting show. <laughs> <laughs> Two Australians in a country with hardly any guns. That's just, right. Just telling people what's what. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I mean, uh, we're, what we're referring to is the interest in psychology and how it yeah, can affect yeah. your your training outcomes. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, like that's my take on it is that I think that the people get angry about industry frauds, right? And there's yep. this big up in arms. But I really truly believe that the overwhelming majority of the people that they're talking about are just don't have the skill set that you expected. And mm. it's not it's not fraudulent and it, there's not there's nothing malicious in that. They just aren't up to where you wanted from them, right? Mm. And I think that it becomes a problem when those people take on cases that they say they can fix and then can't, right? Yep. And an actual fraud is somebody who fabricates their skill set. Mm. That's that's the difference to me. Yep. So it's like, you know, if someone says I was a police dog handler 30 years ago. And right? wasn't. Then that's a problem if they mm. weren't. But if they were and then their skill set just isn't what you thought you were coming in on, mm. then that's not fraudulent. That's just someone who didn't keep up on their skill set. And so they're just not a great dog trainer. Yep. That's that's it. It's not that they're a bad person. It's not that they're being malicious. It's that they're just not that good at it. Yeah, they have a belief system of who they are. Yeah. Mm. And I think that the case of an actual person being full of shit mm. is rare. Yep. And I think that those there's usually something bigger at play. Like yep. there's a bigger overarching probably mental health issue at play there. Yep. I think that that's something we could discuss as well is that I think that when people are constantly lying about their skill set and capability, chances are they're lying about lots of stuff, mm. right? They're probably – caught in a whole great big web of deceit. Yeah. And we have been contacted by someone who, you know, after having seen that post, outed himself to us as said like, yeah, that was me. Mm. I I created a, a web of lies and it was stemming from a weird self-esteem issue as a kid. Yeah. And it all crumbled down as these things inevitably do. Yeah. It was actually a, it was a generous admission. Yeah, mm. totally. Mm. It was right. an interesting read and it was a generous admission that, the person had completely owned up to basically building this 
entire fabricated story. Mm. And is in a program now to help with that. Yeah, and, good and, on you. And I think that, but what it showed, and it was it, certainly- It actually takes some guts. Yeah, fucking Yeah, it knows, does. Right? It, I mean, to out yourself like that and to stand, you know, to, to honour your conviction, that does take some guts. Yeah. And so I think that that's worth keeping in mind as well. Like sometimes, of course, if you're the victim of someone's fraudulent activity, like if you if you don't know dogs and you say, okay, like I want to, I've got this aggressive dog and someone comes around and says, hey, look, I'm killing it. Here's, here's my long list of uh, achievements and they're all false and you fall into that and maybe they make your dog worse. Mm. Maybe you take, they take a lot of money from you. I think as their victim, yep. right, you rightly have, you know, the opportunity well, you rightly can feel pissed off about that and mm. resentful to them and want some sort of retribution for them. But the truth is, and there's nothing wrong with that, you you, you, you can and you should feel that way. Yeah. Can, uh, can I just weigh in on that? Yeah. I think that there has been a lot of that going around. There's, there's certainly been some cases that have been going around in Australia that I'm aware of that, you know, people have made some pretty – outrageous claims to other people they're legit con people you know they are being fraudulent and they are they are carrying out fraudulent acts and making outrageous claims what i encourage people because i mean people have talked to me about these type of things before and i've just said research them yeah ask for references you know look deeply into it and just say okay well you know what i might check with that person because you know they're name dropping people well ring them up but sometimes there's little promises of gifts and candy at the end of it. And then people kind of think, oh, maybe if I if I share this person, they'll get taken away from me. You know, so sometimes if it's too good to be true, it just might be. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, so as I was saying, I think that sometimes when you do find yourself with that industry fraud or like a real fraud person who has taken your money and provided nothing. Yeah. As hard as it can be is to understand like they're in their own situation and now that you've identified it, just get the fuck out. Yep. Don't like when when you want your pound of flesh back, and that's totally natural. That's what everybody wants to do. And God knows I've been in that position and wanted the same thing. Absolutely. But you'll never be satisfied. Yeah. You're right. It'll never be you'll never get what it is that you want. Mm. Right. Karma will come around for them and you shouldn't you don't need to do anything to nudge that. Like I think that your best bet is like you can tell people so that other people don't get burnt. I think mm. that's a reasonable thing to do, right? But I think that just letting it go and knowing that there's probably something bigger at play there, right? Mm. Like I think that we'll talk about it in a moment as well, but I think seldom for the people who really are selling themselves as something that they're not, it's usually not even about money. Mm. There's something else going on there, right? Like it's usually something deeper, some sort of power, it's some sort of they like the attention. Yep. There's usually a lot more things than just money within that because there's certain people that we look at that we would consider to be, you know, industry frauds that really are money focused and they're hyper successful, right? Like, because they're no, they don't get bogged down in people's bullshit. They bleed you for the money they can get from you and they move on. Yeah. Right? They've got you. They're, they're moving on to the next victim. Yeah. yeah. And so like when it becomes personal, that's usually not a money issue. Right. And I think that it's kind of like relates to what we were saying last week where it's a, uh, that breaking of trust and that's the hurtful part, right? Mm. And so when people like you might be vocalizing like, oh, well, I paid him five grand and all he didn't do anything and that might be what you're talking about, yeah. right? But I think sometimes what you might really be upset about is that this person deceived something. me. Yeah. yeah. The, you like, know, the, some of those are really cruel and especially some of those online ones where, you know, women fall for men or men fall for women. They actually 
develop a relationship and a care for that person, you know, and deeply want the best for them. Like they legit think this is a friend, somebody that I've consoled in and I've told them some deep secrets yeah. and I, I actually feel love for them. But the person is not real. Yeah, that's right. It's an absolutely fabricated person. I mean, that pretty much puts you to the seventh level of hell when when you find out that that is all a fictional backstory. Yeah, and so I think that sometimes when people – just reading the comments in the thread, you can see that there's – There's some hurt. There's clearly people who have been Hmm. affected by someone they consider to be an industry fraud. Yeah. And what is common is people talking about the money involved, right? And for sure that, you know, like we've got to eat, right? Everybody needs money. But usually when you read between the lines on on those things, it's what they're actually in is a level of grief Mm. that the person they thought existed doesn't, right? And it's that idea of – yeah, especially if you're trying to remedy a dangerous or or a really difficult dog, right? Mm. If you've got the really difficult dog, your trainer is going to be a big part of your life. And certainly I've noticed that with people who have difficult dogs and ongoing things. And certainly like I've got clients that are, you know, close friends now because you just spend so much fucking time together Absolutely. when you're trying to rectify a large ongoing issue. And especially if someone has committed to like a really difficult dog that we've admitted, okay, this is never going to, this is not going to be rainbows and fairy farts ending to this. This is going to be hard work for the rest of the dog's life and Mm. constant management. And they're willing to do that under your guidance, right? So you're with these people a lot and you're in contact with them a lot and you get to really know them. Yeah. And you're sharing other things that are non-dog related as well. That's right. Like, so, Mm. you know, I've got clients that, you know, walk the dog with, right? So it's like, okay, they're worried about the off-lead interaction with the dog. And so Mm. they're willing to pay because- we can't fabricate that. That that's something that's going to happen to them eventually. Yep. And they're willing to pay for your time in order to take, go on those walks with them to have a live event occur, so that they can manage it under your guidance or have you management, and they they see it. Right. Mm. So I've done that with people. Yep. But that means you're just wandering around a lot, right? And you're, <laughs> you're talking to these people a lot, and mm. you you're developing a relationship with these people. Mm. And I think, like I say, if as the client of that, if it turns out that the person, if everything they're telling you is nonsense, right? Because of course you're talking dog training and you're talking about history and they're like they're, what I do, and I'm sure most people do the same thing. If you're with a client and you're not directly training the dog, right? The dog has like the skills that we need at this point. It's just mm. we're waiting for the circumstance to happen where we use those skills. What I try and do is through storytelling and parables. So I'm talking about my history with other dogs and it's all trying to give them more dog information. Right. Right, because I feel like I'm on the clock for this person. I should be trying to give them some more dog information, but without, like, we don't have the whiteboard. This isn't a lesson. We're just chatting, and so I'm trying to give. Now I'm telling them stories about dogs that I've trained and blah blah blah. And oh, you know, I've been in this situation. We dealt with it this way, and mm. then if it turns out that all that's bullshit, because this is my first client, right? <laughs> which you know it happens, yep. right? Where people realize, like, shit, this guy's never actually done that for a job, mm. right? Then. What's really happened is the person that they've become friends with has died, right? Like, or didn't exist. Yep. And so there's a grief component, right? And there's this resent component for that person. And it's not even, it, it's it's because you fucking made me like you. Yeah. That's where people get upset the most. Is mm-hmm. And that's what, like, you know, I touched on it last week. Is I, I can see you, um, your pupils dilating. Yeah. All, all of but a that's sudden. the thing is mm. because, hey, I fucking liked you, man. Yeah. And you don't exist. Yeah. Like I'm upset because I've lost a friend. I'm not upset because you've turned out to be a piece of shit because that's who you really are. Mm. Right. 
But I'm upset because the person who I thought just died right in front of me, yep. right? You've turned out to be a completely different person. Mm. And I think that the more what I've learned anyway is that you just got to let that shit go, right? Like you've got to grieve it, the loss of the fraud, right? Grieve the loss of the person that never existed yeah. and don't pursue the person that really did. Just cut them away. It's hard when that real deep level of hurt sets in though. Like as you're saying, you know, I mean, it even even when you think about it, it, it Sends the prickles back up your spine yeah. again. I know I've I've experienced similar things myself where I've found that once I've my usefulness has dissipated to certain people, then the friendship goes along with it as well. And I've thought to myself, hey, I th- I thought we were friends beyond, you know, like a a like a reciprocal relationship where I have to give you something in order to receive something from you. Mm. Like I thought we were friends beyond that. And that's why I said to you a while ago, and I I repeat this often is that until you have nothing to give, you realize who your true friends are. Mm. You know, the people who turn up when there's nothing available, when you're at rock bottom, the people who are around you, then they're the people that care about you. Yeah. 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 Man, it's hard. You know, it's, it's hard to eat humble pie with things like that because I've experienced some fucking next level hurt from people like that before where I've let them in and let them get close to me. And I've realized this is not really a friendship. It's either convenient or it's fraudulent, mm. you know, and it, and it does, it feels like a real shiv to the heart, mm. but other people that come along in your life shouldn't suffer for that as well. Mm. They shouldn't be treated with the same skepticism that they're going to do that to you as well because they deserve a better opportunity. Yeah. So, you know, each on their own merit, which is what I'm trying to say. Jason's question was how his topic for the show was mm. how to spot industry frauds. Right? Yeah. And I don't have an answer to that. Like, what's no, it- I don't have an answer for how to spot them. But what I can say is how to prevent them from getting deep layered into your life is do credible background checks. You know, the same thing what you would do if you're looking for somebody to come and work for you. You know, like now when we get people to work for us, we don't just except like a, a shitty sort of, oh, yeah, this person worked for us. They were amazing. We ring them up, mm. you know, like just so we, we actually put some hard level questions on them sometimes, like especially if they're an integral position in the company, we ring up and just say, can you give me some background? Were they definitely reliable? Like you trust them in, in all these situations? How did they handle difficult situations? What were they like when, you know, the customers started putting heat on them, you know, because you really want to know all that sort of stuff. And then you find out whether there's cracks in the story or not. Mm. Um, but also the other thing to do is you can speak to other people other than their referees in the company as well. Like you can speak to the director or somebody else and find out, are they were these two just friends? You know, like did they just have a good relationship and they're just trying to help their friend get a leg up in another job or, you know, just deep. What I'm saying is deep research. Yeah. If you, if it doesn't feel right, if you're sort of listening to the story and think, man, this just sounds too good to be true, or it just sounds like way too much bullshit, or there's something that's not connecting right here, investigate it. Go and have a good look around. Mm. All that glitters isn't always gold. Mm. What's your advice on imposter syndrome? When you just like you and I both have seen plenty of people with like a really high level skill set, mm. and you say, hey, man, you. You're good at this. You should be charging people. Like, stop telling people this stuff for free. You should be. You should be taking clients. Like, this is this should be your job. And they say, Oh no, I'm I'm scared of that. I I I don't feel like I'm ready for that yet. What's your advice on that? Start slow and build up. Yeah, yeah. It's like everything. I mean, it's like learning to play a musical instrument. You're gonna feel like shit and sound like shit at the start. It doesn't sound nice. It sounds clunky and it sounds awkward. But you've just got to. 
you've got to practice it. I remember, geez, I remember the first time I did public speaking when I st- first started speaking for or teaching NDTF. Man, I was nervous as hell, you know. And I mean, I knew it all. I'd been learning it. I'd been, I mean, I'd been part of writing the material, like reading the books and helping to write the material. And I remember the first time I did a class, and I was, I was shaking, like trembling, thinking I was excited. But I was also trembling. I'm thinking, what if these people think that I'm a fucking idiot? Mm. You know, like what if what if what I'm saying doesn't come out right? And because of that, I was tripping myself over. And I, I mean, I was I was getting nervous. I was getting heart palpitations. Now when I'm up there, it's like you know, I'm going out and just like you said, I'm sharing stories with people. Mm-hmm. I'm telling them but because I do have like 30 years of genuine stories that I can share with people about things that I've done and, and places I've been and people I've interacted with and what other trainers have done, like, and what they've showed me, you know, like I've got the history to be able to share with them, but I never, I didn't have that at the start. Mm. I had some history, but I found that when I started small and, and felt comfortable, then I started to expand on it. And then I felt better about it. Because then I could get some, and especially when you've got good interaction and you have got good back and forth with the person that you're speaking to. So some people, you know, I might say, just do a one-on-one with somebody, you know, and you can actually get a coach where you can speak to the coach and say, how about we coach each other how to do this? Because I'd like to get into public speaking. I'd like to get into the realm of teaching. People who want to go and learn how to play guitar, go and sit down with somebody who knows how to play guitar. Yeah. And then they can give them feedback and say, okay, you're doing well. You know chords, you know frets, you know, like go through the go through the work. This is how you strum. This is how you pluck, you know, like you gotta go through all the all the work to do it. But, you know, don't give up on your dream. Sometimes you you can be your own worst enemy. You can sit there and you can talk yourself out of something that could be a life-changing experience for you. And if you do feel that you've got amazing knowledge, I believe, and I always have believed, that if you're the bastion of amazing knowledge and skills, then you're responsible for sharing it with the world. It should never die with you. You should give, You should be able – you don't have to give it away for free, but you should be sharing it with the world. Yeah. You know? I think the issue, though, is most people that think they have, like, imposter syndrome – don't realize they have such good knowledge, right? They sort of demit, they're self-diminishing a little bit. Like they they don't understand that they are good at it. Because if they did understand how good they were at it, then it wouldn't be they wouldn't be uh in that position. Yeah. Well right? I think an indicator for that is there are times where I mean, don't get it off your mum and dad because they're the your biggest fans no matter what. <laughs> so if you uh, if you're speaking with, you know, people in an audience or a collective group and these aren't people that are well-known or friends of yours who are just supporting you no matter what you do, and you find that they're intrigued with what you're saying and think that's absolutely amazing. And even people who are learned, you know, that's another really good indicator that people who are learned are intrigued in a conversation that you guys are having and sitting there and saying, you know what, that is some sage advice. Like I'm really, I'm, this in, this conversation is captivating. Tell me more. Mm. You know, that those things themselves are key indicators that you're on the right path and that you should be pursuing something further. And especially if that's happening, if you can see it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Doing market research is pretty good. Like I think Mm. that you can sort of have people and say, hey, I'm going to give you my product uh, and maybe that is training. I want to do a one-on-one session with you uh, and can you just tell me about it afterwards? Yeah. Right. And how did that, what, what did you think? What do you think of this? So like at the moment I'm deep into that. I've got a video we we're just discussing, right? Mm. Like I've got this video that I'm going to start selling on my website. It's like a, a 40 minute rundown, the most concise to the point version of Nepopo I've ever been able to record, right? And I put that on my website. But 
I have sent that, I think, to more than 10 people now to ask their advice on, yep. right? And people who I know like the system, people who I know don't like the system, yep. um, people who are friends, people who are just kind of, I know in the industry and we don't talk that much, just to get the feedback on like, hey, what do you think of this? Is this enough information? Is this correct? Is mm. this on the right path? And how much should is reasonable to charge for this, right? And I think that doing that, as a, if you want to get into and you have that sort of imposter syndrome is you can then get the feedback from people and they, if they say, no, it's shit, then you go, okay, like, uh, let me try again. Let mm. me come back to you in six weeks. Let me re, let me repackage this. Let me see what I can change. Take on their feedback and then go back to them. Right. Yep. And say like, what about now? Is this better? Um, I like I feel- it. I like it. I think that's a great way to learn and, and expand and be able to reflect on what you're actually doing because retracing on what we've said earlier, there's a lot of times where you can convince yourself that what you're doing is good material until other people critique it. Yeah. And it's better off that you are with uh, a control group that you can say, you know, and I mean, I don't mean a control group where it's falsified, like giving it to your parents and they say, oh, you're the best. You're, yeah. you're amazing. But you actually give it to a controlled group of people who are learned people, who are scholars themselves in certain fields. And I do like what you did where you gave it to positive and negative audiences. Yeah. And they both looked at it and said, you know, this is good. You're on the right track. That does give you verification that what you're doing is correct and it should be out there. Yeah. And then, you know, I think the the trick with when you do market research and that kind of on your product and you are the product Mm. is – Constructive criticism is seldom easy to receive. Oh, absolutely. Right? It's hard. Especially when you're like, hey, what do you think of my product? That's one thing to say. And it's like, look at this chair I made. Do you like this chair? And it's like, yeah, it, it functions as a chair, but I wouldn't use it. Mm. Right. That's then you can go, oh, yeah, fuck that chair. I'll make a better one. Yep. Right. But when it's when you say, here's my product. Here's my heart. It's me. Yeah. I'm the product. Yeah. What do you think? And they go, it's functional, but I wouldn't use it. <laughs> right? Like when it's the chair, you're like, yeah, fuck that chair. I never liked it either. Right. Yep. But when it's like, it's you, you can't say, oh, fuck me. Mm. I never liked me either. Right? Yep. Then you're in the pit. And so I think that's like just being prepared for that. And also, you know, like understanding that criticism comes f- from a place of, trying to improve you. Like there's going to be malicious criticism, but stay away from those fuckers. They're going to give you that, right? Like just gonna, there are people that are going to say stupid shit no matter no matter what you do. There's people that are going to say it's bad, right? Yeah. And you stay away from those they people. They just don't like you. But you, you can find that. Like you find people who have a pattern of acknowledging, like so with the, you know, the content that I've been asking people to look at, some of the people that I've gone to are people I've seen mm. be critical in ways that I agree. And not necessarily that I agree with their opinion, but in a constructively critical way. Mm. And that's how I contacted them and said, hey, do you mind watching this? What I actually said to almost everybody I sent to was, hey, you got 38 minutes to spare, right? Like I would love your feedback on this because I know that they're a person who is capable of giving critical feedback yep. in a, a – a constructive manner, like yep. rather than a degrading manner. Mm. I think that finding someone like that is the way to go. And and I think that that exists at every level. Like you can go to people on your street. If, you, if you're just interested in getting into dog training, you can walk up and down your street and say, hey, like, do you mind if I 
spend an hour a day with your dog for the next three weeks and then do a handover lesson back to you as though you're my client yep. and you get the free training for your dog and mm. I get the, the interaction. And what it is going to cost you is the hour of the lesson that you may or may not want, but then I want the feedback. Yep. I want I want you to pretend as though you paid $3,000 yeah. for that and tell me about how you feel. And, and I think doing that not only prepares you for getting into it, but also then like gives you the skill set and knowledge practice that mm. a lot of people are talking about how they want. Like, you know, you would hear it a lot. People, how do I get into it? How do I start? All, all the like, time. Constantly. You've got to start. You've got to start yep. somewhere. These days, I think I'm more of a talent booking agent than I am a, a business runner or dog trainer <laughs> because people, I like, I kid you not, I literally get- Probably at least a message a day about how do I get in the industry? You yeah. know, what do I fields do I have to get into, or what knowledge do I have to have, or what background yeah. should I possess to be able to get into it? Yeah, but it, it is an interesting thing. And what's you know, your thoughts on charging? What's your thoughts on like rates? That's so, a tough one. I'll, like, I'll give you an example. There's there's somebody that I'm thinking of in my mind's eye at the moment. Okay, and they did the NDTF course, and I would see. People in the forums uh, saying, I, I need, uh, you know, like it was just a person who needed dog training or other dog trainers wanting to recommend a client. And this person would constantly put their hand up and charge top dollar with no real background knowledge of what they were doing. I would constantly look at this person and shake my head because I knew the level of competency of this person. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I mean, at that stage, it's not the person's a bad person, but- in my mind's eye, I probably think to myself, I probably wouldn't even go to that person for cat training. You know? <laughs> but they just hustled on no matter what, you know, yeah. like they took any job, large or small. And I, I mean, some of them I personally was disagreeable for because they were taking on aggression cases. And I knew that person was not suitable to take on aggression cases. And I mean, I even contacted that person, like I reached out to them and said, hey, here's some advice. It's a bit of pill to swallow. You can take it or leave it, but here is some advice. And they kind of shrugged it off. Like it was just an act of defiance and arrogance. And I kind of thought, well, you know what? I did the right thing and tried to reach out personally without humiliating the person. Like I could have called them out and said, I wouldn't go to this person to, you know, bake some bread. Mm -hmm. But I did the right thing, which I believe is the right thing. I reached out and said, you know, as a former mentor, Here's some advice. I think you should consider it. Now, I have done that before to people and plenty of people, former students and so forth, and even current students will ring me up and saying, you know, like, I'm on the cusp of recommending this. What do you think? And I'll say, well, give me a bit more background. You know, like, tell me what your knowledge is and what have you done since you've been on the course? You know, like, what further education have you done and have you have you mentored or done anything? And they've said no. And I've said, well, you know, maybe I would consider – giving that lesson to somebody else who's more educated and does have the background and then asking if you can go along and be a part of that lesson. You know, and I said, that's your payment is getting to mentor with the person who can actually do that. And they've, you know, people rang me up in the past and said, I did that. It was the best thing I could have done. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, that's some free advice that I'll happily hand out to people because if the role was reversed, I would do it myself. Mm -hmm. I would say to the person, hey, look, I'd rather you do this lesson, but can I come watch? Mm -hmm. And no harm, no foul. You know, I think that's best for everybody. That's that's certainly a win, win, win. Yeah. Client wins, you as the recommender ring wins, and another trainer who's qualified gets the gig. Everybody comes out a victor in that in that situation. But what was the actual point that we were trying to go on? Before? Well, price structure. So price structure. Mm. Like, so you've finished a course or you, you're at a point now where you think like, I'm going to go into people's homes. Yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you my take on this, right? Again, I'm such a binary person and this is the what I try and encourage people to do. Yep. I'm not going to tell you how much to charge because like really that's very set by area more than anything else, right? Yep. You know, the, the demographics of where you are is going to determine the price of dog training. Yep. But what I think is that pricing is really binary. Like if you're learning, it's free or you're doing it and it's the full price. Mm. What I, I worry about and it's what I try and talk people out of is – the like, oh, you know, if, if say $100 is the going rate for mm. a, a session, people say, well, I'm learning, so I'll charge 30 and then 50 and then 70 and then 100 or something like that. And my take on, and, you know, I could be totally wrong. Or what do I know? But this is what I did when I was sort of looking to do that was for me, you can either do it or you can't. Yep. And so if I'm confident that I can do it, you're paying. Yep. Right. And if I was learning, and for there was a lot, a lot of dogs where I was like, um, I'm, you know, I'm upfront with people. Like, it, well, especially when I first started doing this, I didn't even know you could charge. Mm. Right? So I was just training people's dogs because I wanted the access to the dog, right? Um, but it's free. And then, but for me, there was no like build up. There yep. was no like, I'm going to charge a little bit. I'm going to charge a little bit. And it was like, okay, today I've decided this is for, this is, I'm charging, right? Mm-hmm. And whatever, like, you know, I looked up whatever in the area was charging, just found the, the you know, the the mean price or the average price and that's it. Like, that's what yep. I charge, right? Yeah. And so I feel like, because you're either capable of the work or you're not. Mm. And like, I've done the same throughout my career in that if I can't help you, I don't charge you. Mm. And I've swayed on that because you're getting my time and maybe it's outside my skill set, but then like maybe the advice is, I can't help. And sometimes I feel like mm, I should charge for that because I've it's been invested my time a lot of time in it. And, but I don't. Mm. And, and in the early days, there was a few of those, right? And I usually was upfront with people like, if I can't set you on the path, then the, I'm not going to charge you. And, but I determined that because what will happen is people won't do what you say. Mm. And you go, but did you do it? Oh, well, it was like, well, then. Like, we don't know. We're in the gray zone, my friend. Like, we don't know whether what I've said would have worked if you'd done it, but you haven't done it. So you, this isn't free all of a sudden. Yep. But I've been, I, I, I remember it was really, really, it was one of the, an early one that I did and it was a horrible console. And I actually left like partway through because I was like, you, you're you not going to do any of this, are you? Like, and and she's, the lady's making excuses for this dog and it bit someone. And the way her kid was interacting with the dog, I was like, stop, this is, this is disaster. And she was just like arguing with me on everything. Those people, I'd definitely charge them. Well, no, I'm, I just was like- I'd charge them for wasting my time. Yeah, I walked out. I, yeah. I was like, you're not- I was like, none of this is going to happen, are mm. you? And you, and then it, it sort of dawned on me that the only reason she had even agreed to get me there was because the dog had bit someone and mm. she was like, I could. I got the feeling that I was being set up for the fall. Oh, right. Okay. Right? Like yeah, I got the sound, feeling that she had been told she had to get a trainer and address the issue. And she was ticking that box Mm. and she was going to get my receipt and say, like, I've been to a trainer. I got the trainer. It's done. And I was like, no way. I'm not, I'm not this. And like I did probably three quarters of the session, like gave her all the information and was working with the dog, but she wasn't even paying attention. It was just this disaster. And I was trying and using it like, it was a long time ago. So it didn't have the skill set that I have now with people and with dogs. Mm. Uh, but I just was like, this is, this has got Pat taking the fall for this dog bite and someone else <laughs> written all over it. Yeah. I was like, you know what? N- never mind. I'm mm. out. 
and walked out. Yeah, the charging the charging one's definitely an, an interesting one because that that's been a conversation that's come up an incredible amount of times online and you know just times that I've even done some Facebook messaging with people like they've done the course and they've they've said you know look I'm I'm at that stage where I really want to leave my job and I want to start charging for it and I've said to people do you feel like you could give people value yeah and they they believe in their heart and soul that they can like they be- and that's why I said to people like um, an old mentor of mine many many years ago showed me something I think it was a dog lead and he said what's that worth Glenn and I came up with a figure and he said, no, no, listen to me again. What's it worth? And I said, oh, and I kept punching out figures. And he said, you're missing the point. I'll give you the answer. It's worth whatever anybody is prepared to pay for it. And that changed my whole concept on, you know, like we've had Matt on the show talking about sales and so forth, but that changed my whole concept of it because sometimes I've kind of thought, well, who am I to tell other people what they should charge for things? Mm-hmm. If people find value in what they're getting, there have been times where I know that the advice that, and, and well, let me say, I feel it in my bones that the advice that I've given the person would far outweigh what another person would come in and tell them for this specific object. But yet somebody else has come in, they formed a better relationship and they've taken it away better because this person explained it in a way that made sense to that person and they enjoyed their time together. Mm. Whereas with me, I come in sometimes like a wrecking ball and I basically, you know, like I basically walk in like Darth Vader and then say, all right, this is how it's happening and this is what's going down. So for some people, that's not what they wanted. They didn't want that. Um, They thought they wanted that. The information was solid, you know, like all the science was there, all the information could back up everything that I need to say, but they didn't want that. They wanted somebody to come in and and sit with them and make them feel good about themselves. Mm. Even though I find that professionally offensive. Yeah. You know, like that is I, a big part of the job. It is. Yeah. You know, and I realized a while ago that a lot of this sometimes is forming relationships. Yeah. And making people feel comfortable. Yeah. We do weird things as dog trainers. We I mean, do. Yeah. yeah. We've told the story. I, I got paid to potentially catch a woman masturbating once. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, but like, so we do weird stuff as dog trainers and I've been frustrated by plenty of clients that get, have like, get me around yep. and then don't want to do the dog training. And you realize like, oh, I'm not the dog trainer. Mm. Right? Like I'm- I'm, I'm the marriage counselor. Well, I'm something else. Yeah. Right? Like, and then there's been plenty of different situations where I've realized that where I'm like, oh, I see what's happening here. Like mm. I'm, I'm the buffer in between- situation or I'm the support, I'm part of your support network and you needed to whinge to me about something or, or just like what I, you know, I think everybody in dog training has been in that kind of situation at some point or another where you realize, oh shit, I'm not a dog trainer. I'm a paid friend. Yeah. Mm. But like what I've also found as well as, especially with people who have reactive dogs and that sort of thing, like I'm your support. Like you've, I've given you all the skills. Like you're the one that's going to deal with the situation with your reactive dog when you come in the street. You know how to do it. I've trained you how to do it. You're capable of doing it. But you just want me to be standing there to draw some strength. Mm. Like, and that's one where I've, I've, I've real, I found myself in that position a couple of times. And, and when you kind of sign it, set people free, like, hey, stop. Like, stop it. You, yep. you don't need me there. Yeah, we do weird stuff. We're, it, you know, we're, what's the, I'm trying to think of the right word without saying we're hookers, but that's what we are. <laughs> right? what, what's that? There's a, there's a comedian in, uh, in America. He's a short black guy. Um, what's his name? Uh, Kevin Hart. Yeah. There's a movie with Kevin Hart where he plays like 
what what he does is he acts like he's the best man of, of people oh, who have got yeah, no yeah, friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the rules that he actually has is after this is done, we're going our own way. You know, yeah, like yeah. we're not friends. We don't have a relationship. But he he's basically paid for people who are lonely, who don't have any friends or connections or anything like that, to get up and be the best man at the wedding and say the nicest things about people. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like as dog trainers, we're kind of that person. We, sometimes we are. Yeah, sometimes we f- we fill that, that void. But so I think that, you know, circling back around, this feeds into the idea of that we fulfill that part in people's lives, right? Mm. Like as dog trainers, you become, you are in the same way that I drop my kid at daycare. Mm. The people that I leave him with are important to me, yeah. right? Like I, I need to know that like, it's not like we're there for ages, especially now with COVID, we're not allowed in, but we, we still talk to them. And I have this sense of like, I'm leaving my kid in good hands, yep. right? Because you know, it's the most precious commodity that I have, or mm. it's not a commodity, the most precious thing that I have, I'm putting it in the hands of a of a potent, of a stranger, so mm. I want them not to be a stranger. I want to know that they're going to look after him. I yeah, want to yeah. know that he's he's safe. I want to know that they're guiding him in the same way that I 100%. am. That they're not turning him into a little asshole, right? Yep. And I think so. That same thing is for some people and their dogs. And so when you're the trainer, you're guiding these people with their dogs. And that's mm. why I think to circle back around to the idea of the industry fraud is that if it turns out that all the knowledge and stuff that you've been passing on is bullshit. Yep. That's why people get so hurt by it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, but, but that sort of person also, you're susceptible to fraudulent behavior because people who are intending on doing that can actually see that vulnerability in you. Yeah. You know, because you open yourself up and you give so much of yourself and they can basically see that, you know, while you're opening up, so is your wallet. Yeah. You know, I remember there was a client of mine that was in Melbourne and rich family, had plenty of money. And the only reason I did this is because at sometimes I feel that, and it's through the coachings of other better people than me who have encouraged me to be a better man. And I was sort of milking him along. At one stage, I just said, look, I think we need to have a conversation here. You don't need to see me anymore. And the husband in the family, he just said to me, he goes, Glenn, we got plenty of money my wife and kids enjoy you coming around and training the dog, to be honest. And he goes, I don't care if you just come around and do the same thing over and over again. And I said, yeah, but I kind of do, you know, like it doesn't fit well with me. Like, I feel like I'm, it's just, I'm turning up just to take money off your bench and walk out again. Mm -hmm. He goes, you don't understand. We're happy with what you're doing. He said, this is the best hour that the dogs actually get while we've actually got them. Yeah. And And I said, well, that makes me feel better. Like I don't feel bad about that now. Where are other times where people, I know they just don't have the money to continue, where I've said to them, look, like this is long-term and you've got to understand, I really need you to, as the co-pilot now to take over the pilot spot because all I'm going to do is I'm going to keep coming around and I just don't want to get stuck in a rut of being um, circular with what we're doing here. We need to be progressive. We need to actually take active steps to you know managing what the problem is and going forward. And sometimes that's, you know, the lure of, of keeping people on the hook sometimes is intoxicating. Mm. And I can see why people get stuck on that. But, you know, good people have been stuck in that rut. And I've had conversations with other people in the industry who have had that happen. And they've said, yeah, I kind of feel guilty that that did happen. And I said, well, it's acknowledging it and then having the honest conversation probably with yourself and with the client to say, look, I don't think we need to do this anymore. You know, you can professionally cut them off because they don't need you. And they really don't have the resources to keep paying for it. So either that you just 
you're just milking them along. And some people, I mean, look, I've met some people in marketing who said, mate, you, sh- you should, you know, if they're willing to pay, you should take the money. Mm. You know, wh- why not? So it puts you in a, it puts you in a difficult place. But I guess what I'm saying is I'm not telling anybody how to run their business or what to charge. I'm suggesting to people do what you're doing and have a shred of integrity about it. You know, like if you can see that this is not the best case scenario for yourself and that client, then maybe just have an honest conversation with them. You know, sit down with them and say, all right, here we are in the timeline of things. Here's the scheme of where we need to go. What do you want to do? Can you continue? Or do you think it's worth now that you can actually, you're empowered enough to be able to take over and I can come back only if if needed from here on in. Mm. I'm not sure. It's a hard one to give life advice to people because, as I said, it's not telling people what to do. It's just suggesting on how to be a better industry person. Yeah. It's tricky. It is tricky. I think the main thing is these days- Don't be a- (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's that. Yeah. Geez, that episode we did with Birdie, I had to edit that like crazy. Yeah, I had to listen to, that, yeah, right? I had to listen to every word. Telling stories. It was fun though. It was fun. But yeah, I think to you know, sort of close out, I think that these days it's difficult for people to be fraudulent in the industry, I think, because it's so easy to just ask for evidence and, and have to supply it, right? Yeah. Like there's, it's so easy to film stuff. It's so easy to have evidence of dog training working. It's one of the reasons why Remy is so important to me is that I have to be able to show. Yeah. Like the, I'm mostly, what I love teaching people to do is, you know, do stuff with their dog. Yeah. Yeah, I've been offered a lot of money for him. People have tried to buy him off me a lot and I don't have, although I would have time now with the Rona, but I didn't have time to start a new dog. Mm. And I've said like, that dog's worth a lot of money to me because I need evidence that what I do works. Yep. And I think that's reasonable. I think that as, you know, we discussed that Yeah, it gives you backup. It actually gives you pragmatic credibility that you can pull him out. As we said, cool story, show me your dog. Well, you can. Yeah. You can, you can open the back of the car and say, well, here it is. But that's what I think like it, when you- Talking about looking, identifying industry fraud versus people, you know, people that know what they're doing is mm. everyone online these days, like there should be a body of evidence of your work. That's what yeah. like, that's why Remy has his own social media profile. He's has his own Instagram page mm. to provide that body of evidence, right? Yeah. Like there it is. There's all the info. And sometimes, you know, when I make little clippets that I put on social media, like I'll explain something and then here it is the video of me doing it, yeah. right? And like, if you go far enough back through, well, I changed the the page but like when i was doing way more pet dog stuff that's the kind of stuff i was posting right mm. like here's me with this dog loose leash walking here's this dog that's aggressive and now it's not right yep. like that content's out there on the online but now that i'm way more interested in training the dog trainer side of stuff mm. i'm like well here's that kind of content and i think that no matter what you're looking to learn if the person doesn't have some evidence that they can do that then i think it's time to go to someone else well the other there's another part of this as well you know, and I'm talking about you and I on here is that you and I coach trainers, you know, and we've got credibility in the bank that we can do this because we've been working with some very successful dog trainers, you know, like through the NDTF and through what you're doing, you know, like we're either starting people on a brand new journey where they're entering the career or that they're already in the career and that they're getting qualification that they've come to us and done coaching for it. Yeah, mate, I've been clear from the start. I'm way, I'm way better at teaching people like I'm pretty good with dogs mm. but I'm much better at with the people like that's that's a big chunk of my 
and it's what I prefer to do. I love teaching. That's yep. I'm. I love teaching. I fucking love dog training. Don't get mm. me wrong, and I'm, I'm pretty good at it. But I'm way better at coaching people to be better than I am. Yeah. Right. Like I but think that's, that that's the hallmarks of a good coach. Is yeah. you know, give them everything. Don't hold back. Yeah. Like that's what I write on forms now when people ask what you do for a job I actually write coach yeah because overwhelmingly that's what I do mm. is coach people rather than being on the tools myself I'm still on the tools a lot but I, like overwhelmingly that's what I'm doing is coaching other people to achieve success yep got anything else no I think uh that was a good conversation it went for a good period of time and it, I think it was it was probably friendlier than what we imagined it might have <laughs> been based on the difficulty of the the topic because I mean, look, we've we've tried to have these conversations before where it got a bit salty. We've listened back on it and thought, oh, it's really not in the. I, I actually enjoyed this conversation because at no stage was it getting salty about anybody, and it didn't, you know, it didn't sort of conjure up too much emotion. Hopefully, when people are listening to this, they also be able to validate that in themselves that yeah, you know, things hurt sometimes, but look deeper into things, look for references, like look for evidence of work. Yeah, and if you get burned, just let it go and move on. Easy said than done sometimes, but yeah, totally. it's good. It's definitely sage advice. Yeah, yeah. All like right. there's a there's another good saying before we do actually close out that says if you're on a path for revenge, dig two holes. Yeah, you know, because I mean, <laughs> you can waste a hell of a lot of a good life feeling that you've got to get even with somebody. Yeah. What's the other ones like? Uh, anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person yeah. to get sick or something yep. like that. Yep. Yeah. Very spiritual up these days, me and you. Well, I think we've won a cosmic path of, to enlightenment. I think we have been <laughs> more enlightened by, like we said, you know, there are good people that have been in our community that are, are giving us our own bitter pills from time to time. Yeah. And that's not that's nice to have. And I mean, you know, the, the fact that you and I get to have some conversations, that our community are, are reaching back out to us and- you know, the measure of if you're doing the right thing, people have been writing into us quite frequently saying, you know, like you guys aren't just talking about a dog training show, like you've changed my life. And that, I can't tell you how nice that actually is to read that sort of stuff. Like we just got on here to tell some stories, you know, and the fact that people have said, look, I was in a deep hole. It's not just us. Like I'm giving credibility to everybody that we've included in on this show along the way and the community that we've built online as well. Like we're actively talking about hard topics and subjects that don't often get talked about or get glossed over or get too angry or the forum itself gets too salty. And there's been some certain indications of that where there's some other dog training forums online, which are, is just hate fueled. Yeah. You know, they're so, they're so spiteful in the way that they carry on and talk where we try and reduce the amount of that. And, and by no means, like if you're listening to this, even if, if I'm talking in a spiritual sense, there's no means that I've ever indicated I'm a perfect person. I often say to people and I frequently say to people, I'm a guy with a pocket full of rocks in a glass house. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I fuck things up, you know, and there's plenty of apologies that I have to give out to people from time to time when I've done the wrong thing. But the fact that I'm at least aware that I'm doing it, I feel that that increases my leverage as a human being. Mm. Deep. Deep. You know, there is some saltiness around the industry. I don't like- <laughs> We're going to wrap up now. We've just talked about another- Yeah, but another. I don't like self-inflation and talking about people that like the show and stuff like that. I just think that we put it out. But I think it is worth noting, we've had some pretty 
fucking amazing messages from people. And I find that really- That's what I'm saying. It's those messages. It's not just love you guys or anything like that. Like they're sharing deep shit with us. Yeah. Like to be frank with people listening sort of, yeah, because I get uncomfortable talking about, oh, people like the show and we get good feedback. But like we've had people message us saying that they were going to kill themselves and yeah. didn't, right? Like, and not one or two, but a, a few, which is really weird because we just talk shit. Yeah. So, but but that really is amazing. And I think that some of the people that I have met through the industry, not necessarily through doing the podcast, but just through the industry are just amazing. Mm. Like I've developed such international, such deep friendships. And it's one of the issues I'm so... I'm so upset about not being able to travel. It's like yeah. I really miss those people. I know. It's like you're, you're robbed from your family, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And I really miss meeting people and talking with strangers. Like yep. I really miss that. Like I, to the point where I'm, I'm awkward in stores now. Cause like people will be like, Hey go on. And I'm like, I'm like trying to find out their love story. Like I'm, I'm so <laughs> used to having conversations with strangers yep. that I am, I'm seeking that out and, and trying to like something that I've been really enjoying doing. And I'm sure people are sick of it is, you know, if I'm in a store, instead of having a conversation with the character of the the person that works in the store, like having a conversation with the person that works in the store, not mm. the character of I'm here. Is there anything you like? And I've realized a few times I'm like, Oh, what are you doing? You fucking weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do they give a shit? But I just mm. miss talking to people. Right? Well, if you think about it, I mean, it's probably a month away and we'd be over in Florida now. And don't get me wrong. We're talking about the things that are making us suffer, but we realize there's all of us are doing this. Like yeah, we're yeah. all suffering. Everybody is. Everybody's suffering these withdrawals. And it's so unfair because like I said, you know, there are, even last time we were over there and we were in Colorado, when I left, I was, I was sad, Yeah, you know, because of people that I care about and people I love spending time with and people that I really, you know, like we're still friends. Like we speak every day. Every single day on Messenger, we're we're chatting with each other. Yeah, and you know we won't get to see each other this year, and and maybe not even next year. Who knows how long this is going to go? But this is the great thing is that we can still have medium like this where we can reach out to each other. So not all is lost. So I don't want people to hit a you know like a a plateau of despair and think, well, you know this really is terrible. It's it's not fair. It is unfair. Yeah, we'll all get through it. But though. we will all get through it and we will be, you know, like I think that there are so many things that people have also learned of themselves that they can do and that they can in- expand into that they didn't know they had before. Yeah. I think for me I got a big kick in the dick the other day um, <laughs> thinking about kick in the dick. <laughs> <laughs> when Sean put up that we had mm. like officially – um, cancelled the seminar at their yeah. place. And that for me, I was like, oh, motherfucker. Because when all the- You're talking about Sean Edwards for people who, yeah. who are following along. When all the COVID bullshit started, like it seemed, you know, it was in September, the, yeah. the seminar I was doing at his place and Janet. And uh, it seemed like that was far enough away that it could maybe happen. Yeah. And that was really hanging on to hope for that one. And when he kept, you know, and going to sh- like- Sean's like a brother and going to his place feels like going home. Yeah. You, you know what I you, mean? You feel totally like I've, I mean, when I was over there with you at, and, and stayed at Sean and Janet's place, they never, ever once made us feel like we were a couple of strangers in their home. No. We felt like family. Yeah. And the same with, you know, Melanie Benware and Jason, you know, when I was at their place, never, ever, even when I was sick and dying on her lounge suite, you know, never, ever made me feel like I was an inconvenience. Yeah. Not once, you know, just felt appreciated and loved and you know i mean even i share that with you because sean sent me a mess few messages saying man i'm so 
you know, bummed out that I'm not coming. I love you and Pat, and I'm really in despair that I can't get over there. And I feel the same way about not getting over there as well. Yeah, and staring down the barrel of that might be years away. That's depressing. Isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Anyway, mm. that's it for another episode. The, of the sad ending of the canine paradigm. <laughs> as always, if you like what you hear, please. No, like we can't it. leave him like this. this is, <laughs> it, we have to. We have to. We have to end on a high. Tell a funny story. A funny story. Yeah. You got me on the spot now, trying yeah. to tell a funny story. You've got plenty of funny stories. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking, I was thinking about genetics the other day, right? And yep. I was listening actually to Ivan on Working Dog Radio. You know, he did an interview with them and mm-hmm. he, he he spoke one time about, they were talking about the importance of genetics, right? Yep. And they said something about like a puppy that lays down to drink from its bowl and he was talking about like, you know, replicatable genetics. And he said like, I know, he, he's like, I know you, like as he's talking to the puppy, like I know what you're going to do. I know you better than you know you because I've seen versions of you. You know, he's maybe bred a thousand dogs from similar bloodlines. So he's like, yeah. I've seen versions of you. And I stole a line that he said from that when I was talking to Rip the other day, right? You you have to tell the Rip story. That's the <laughs> that's funny, doing that's the funny story. So yeah. he did something. I can't remember what it was. And I yeah. was like, he, I, I knew he was going to do it. And I yep. said like, oh, this is, he's like, yes, I'm going to do it. And I'm like this. Yep. He's like, how'd you know? And I was like, I know you, man. Like, I was like, I am you. <laughs> like, I was like, I, you're just a tiny little version of me. Yep. And I, I know you, I know everything about you. Like I, <laughs> I know your mom so well that I see the traits of you and her. I know what you're going to do. I can predict what's coming of you. Like I know everything about you. Mm. And, and he goes, you don't know everything about me. This is a five-year-old folks. Yeah. yeah. You don't know everything about me. And I was like, dude, I know everything about you. There's nothing about you. I don't know. Like I'm with you your whole <laughs> life. We're, we're hardly ever apart. Right. Like, and you ju- you're just a tiny me. I know everything that's going through your head. Mm. And he goes, he goes, well, you don't know everything. And I was like, well, what don't I know? He goes, you don't know what I say in bed at night. <laughs> right? And I go, <laughs> what do you mean? He goes, sometimes, sometimes, I, sometimes I swear at night. And I go, what? <laughs> I go, hey, no secrets in the family. And he goes, yeah, you don't know. You don't know. Sometimes I, sometimes I, I say stuff. I'm like, what? He goes, can I say it? He's not allowed to swear, right? And uh, I'm like, yeah, you get the pass, right? You're allowed to yep. say anything you want. He goes, sometimes at night I say fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hang on, let me see if I understand. <laughs> Between me walking out of your room like, good night, and turn off the light, and yep. you fall asleep, you lay there, and you just say fuck, and he goes, yeah, sometimes. Right? But he goes, and he looks at me like defiantly like, you didn't know I did that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's right. I did it. I was but like, that, Why? How you funny is that? Like, I remember you telling this story the other day. I can't remember who we were with. And they're just saying, can you just imagine him laying in bed and just practicing his swear words at yeah, night? Yeah. <laughs> like putting a pillow over his head and just going, fuck. Yeah. As long that as he, is hysterical. As long as he gets it right. As long as he's using it in the right context. That's right. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, that's it Yeah, for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from and tell us something specific. Mm. If you want to support the show, best way to do that is Patreon. Mm -hmm. I just got the last bit of footage for a new thing I'm putting out about Remy's workout routine. Yep. This is the longest period of me and him have been together. And so me and him both are for the first time in our lives on like an actual good strict program. Yep. And guess what? 
They work. Like when you dedicate it and you stick to an exercise regime. Funny about that. <laughs> Isn't that? Yeah. Right? Anyway, so I'm going to put that in. I've just got to finish editing together. But I've got the last bit of footage that I needed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you can jump into Patreon. Check that out. That'll yep. be in there any second now. The other thing you could do is buy some cool merch. Mm-hmm. I've got T-shirts and so forth and such with in Teespring. Get yep. in there. Check that out. By a resident artist, Avery. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Avery. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to jump into the discussion group on Facebook. Be mm. nice. Yeah. Be kind. Yeah, don't, don't call bring, anybody out. Don't bring your salt into our group. Yeah. Mm. Be careful what you say in there. Yeah. And if you're a fraud, fuck off. Be nice. Yeah. It's the main thing. Yeah. You know, my close personal friend, The Rock, once said, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. <sighs> And if you want to, if you have something to say that's of a personal nature, shoot us an email. We are info at thecanonparadigm.com. Mm. See you. Goodbye. <laughs>